Ryan. I'm one of the elders here at North Shore. And I get to read uh, this morning's scripture, which is out of Ephesians 4. And then I'm going to pray for us. Here's the word of the Lord. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were all sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now let's pray. Holy and perfect Father, you are the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Great, greater are you than any and all things. We are unworthy on our own, but with you and because of you, you make us worthy, and also to be able to be in your presence. Thank you, Father. Thank you for redeeming us from our sinful and destructive nature. If not for you, we would be lost. We'd be incomplete and on a path to eternal death. It, we wouldn't make sense without you. We wouldn't have purpose without you. But with you, we are complete and whole. We owe you all and that is one of the many reasons we gather together like this and sing praises to you, to pray as a group to you, and to learn from your word. Thank you for blessing us with the ability to freely meet like this. Father, and North Shore has many that are in need of your healing and comfort. We pray for Chuck Sample as he, he deals with hip pain that he needs healing from. We pray for Bethany Salzman as she continues to heal um, uh, you know, and recover from her leg and knee injury. We ask for your spirit to be with Chris Gretzinger as he recovers from, from a, a pretty horrible accident. Please heal his injuries and show him how much you love him, encourage him, and strengthen him in his relationship with you. And Father, we pray for Allie Lindstad and uh, for her mom and the rest of her family, please be with them in this difficult time in whatever decisions that need to be made, and please comfort them through it. We also pray for Dan Zwicker, as, as I understand he's recovering from surgery to remove a cancer. Father, there's, there's so much need. Help us all to keep you at the center and to focus especially on you during times of struggle and pain. We also ask that you would guide us as we consider this upcoming budget for North Shore, as well as how we should proceed with future renovation plans. Help us to be good stewards of what you have given us and help us to use this place for your glory and not just for our own pleasure or our own comfort or our own preference. Finally, Father, I want to thank you for for new life. We've been blessed um, with two new little ones. 
in this church this last week. Please be with Ryan and Rebecca and, and John and Stephanie. God, Lord, as, you, as you've given them boys. Not the same boy, but different boys. Um, help us all to rally around them and bring us up with little, these little guys in the love and wisdom of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for caring so much for us that with all the billions of people in this world and their many issues, that you would listen to our prayers and care about us. All praise and honor be to you forever and ever. And we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would use me now as your messenger as your mouthpiece, but that these would be your words and that your spirit would take them from my mouth to all of our hearts and that you would embed the seed of your word in our hearts and that it would bring forth much fruit as we draw on it, as we remember it. God help us, we can't do this without you. And so we pray that you would honor Jesus now through your word and through the right reception of your word, which we pray you would do in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue this week in our trek, as you heard Brian read, through the fourth chapter of Ephesians. In the section of the letter just prior to this one that we began last week, Paul helps us to see that believers are going to live dramatically different lives than they did before their conversion because as new creations in Christ, they are dramatically different people. Specifically, he says that believers have put off the old self with all the godless ways of living attached to that. In our conversion, we've also put on the new self as new creatures in Christ, increasingly living in true righteousness and Holiness. That's the word he uses in verse 24. Last week, we began to look at the very practical ways that this holy lifestyle is manifest in the lives of believers. For instance, last week, we saw the believers, as you heard read, have put away falsehood. And in place of falsehood, speak only the truth. We control our anger. And we don't steal, but instead we do honest work so that we can give the earnings away to bless other people. Those were three marks of true righteousness and holy living we looked at last week. But again, in giving all of these admonitions, it's really important for us to, to remember Paul is not simply barking out moral instructions here. No, what makes these admonitions distinctively Christian is that all of these massive changes in lifestyle are rooted in the gospel. That is, believers can live this way only as by faith we live in ways that are consistent with the new creation that God has made us into through the gospel. Believers can increasingly live holy lives because God has made them holy people. So Paul's not offering just instructions on how to live life here. He's saying, these are the implications of the gospel if it's alive and it's taken root in your heart. So live in a manner consistent with the saving and transforming work that's been done in your heart. That work of God must be the basis of all of our moral 
efforts. That's Christian ethics. That's Christian morality. If we live holy lives only because we know God wants us to and it will in some way make him happy, we're just being outwardly religious. That's not the Christian ethic. The gospel is at the center of the Christian ethic. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that's the basis of all Christian morality. Otherwise, we just become religious rule keepers. Today we come to the next section of moral admonitions. And again, they're all rooted in the gospel. These are more ways in which believers live in true righteousness and holiness. And this morning, we're only going to look at one. But what a one it is. For many of us, this may be the most important moral imperative, certainly the most practical that Paul gives here. Beginning in verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's not a coincidence that Paul is once again returning to a reminder that the words we speak are powerful indicators of people who have been made part of this new humanity in Jesus. Last week, we were reminded that back in 415, Paul implies that our words have great power to build up the body as we speak the truth and love to one another. In last week's text, Paul warns against believers lying because the spiritual DNA of believers is that we put away the falsehood and we speak only the truth. Here in verse 29, again, for the third time in such close proximity, Paul again returns to the words we speak as marks of true righteousness and holiness. So words are a big deal. And this emphasis on the importance of holy speech for believers is not just some kick that Paul is on. This is consistent with the rest of the biblical teaching. James famously warns in chapter 3 of his letter, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now that is such a strong statement. It sounds like exaggeration. But in a letter, epistolatory form, that genre, exaggeration is not appropriate. And so he means every word of this. This is an accurate word picture. This is God's heart for what it is to have this tremendous destructive power in our mouths. And James and Paul's warnings about speech, really they just echo the teaching of Jesus who talked about this a lot. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. That's just an amazing statement. It's really hard for us to imagine how Jesus could give any more sobering warning about our speech. This prediction is obviously intended to shock us into much greater vigilance about how we talk. 
I think most of us would blush when we think about having to give an account for every careless word we've spoken. But Jesus also says here that the words that we speak, they will be the authoritative measure of whether we have been truly born again. I mean, that can be chilling for people who have been influenced by a culture where particularly the political rhetoric has become so overheated and is intended to totally defame and destroy people on both sides of the aisle. In our culture, it's very easy to become so accustomed to malicious and hurtful speech that we lose sight of just how evil it is. Just as sobering for many of us is the warning that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 12. There he predicts, therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I mean, think about the things that you have said about other people in unguarded moments. Things that you wrongly assumed would never be revealed. The notion that one day those words will be heard by everyone is enough to make us break out into a cold sweat. This is in the Old Testament too. Back in the prophet Isaiah chapter six, God calls the prophet Isaiah to be a prophet. What was it that scared this devout priest of God about his life more than anything else when he stands before the presence of God? The angelic seraphim are worshiping, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in response to the perfect worship of these angels, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Some people say the reason they focus on his lips is because he's calling him to be a prophet, to speak for God. But he hadn't called him to be a prophet at this point. That's not why. Isaiah hears the sinless angels worship. That we know happened. And he's terrified that by comparison, his words are so wretched before a holy God. The point of all of this is to remind us that Paul is following a tradition of biblical authors, including Jesus, who speak jarring words of warning about how we talk. And the question is why? Why is this such a big deal to God? We see it in the prophets, we see it in the gospels, we see it in the letters. Why is this such an important indicator of whether or not we're living in true righteousness and holiness. That's what Paul's concern is. Well, later on in these verses, Paul answers that as it relates to how we speak to one another in the church. So we'll get to that. But more generally, many answers could be offered. For one, people who we would never even remotely consider physically assaulting, we, without hesitation, and sometimes with great passion, will target for our sometimes vicious verbal assaults, whether it's to their face or behind their backs. And to assault in any way, physically or verbally, a fellow image bearer of God is, of course, 
an assault on God himself. The reason why abortion is murder is because babies are created in the image of God. You take the image of God and you kill it, you're assaulting God. You're, you're in some way being murderous toward God. The same thing is true in our speech. If we're assaulting verbally a person who bears the very image of God, who represents God, then we're assaulting God. Another reason our speech is so important and worthy of God's attention is that the words we speak are directly connected to our spiritual condition. That's already been alluded to. Jesus absolutely makes it concrete and he humbles most of us when he's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 12 and he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. As much as we would sometimes prefer it otherwise, Jesus teaches that we reveal what is in our hearts by what comes out of our mouths. One of the great temptations for any believer, especially when we're around other Christians, is to be a poser. I mean, that is to act far more spiritually mature than what we really are. Every one of us is at least tempted to do that. But one way, even the most convincing, award-winning, Oscar award-winning poser reveals the true condition of his or her heart is by the words they use. The people they're verbally critical of or even openly assault. Profanity. Our words have a powerful way of revealing where we really are with Jesus and not where we want other people to think about where we are with Jesus. But what does Paul say here in these two verses that contribute further to this biblical record of God on speech. He says, let no corrupt, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now there are six phrases in those two verses. So we're just gonna take them phrase by phrase, each one very quickly. First, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Notice first that this is an absolute prohibition. This is not a command to, to work kind of hard at this. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And then the next phrase, by the way, he says, but only this. So this is a zero tolerance statement. The word translated corrupting literally means rotten, but in the context it means putrid or foul. It's as if our corrupting talk has a foul smelling spiritual aroma to God. Spiritually speaking, we stink the place up when our speech is either profane or when we use our mouths to attack or gossip or unfairly criticize or tear someone down. By referring to speech as foul or putrid, Paul may very well be alluding back to what Jesus said about words in Matthew 15, 11, when he tells his disciples, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And that's consistent with what James says, where he says the tongue can stain the whole body. There is, the tongue can be a defiling agent. When our speech is sinful, it has a defiling effect on us who give the speech. The second phrase is, but only such as is good for building up. That's what we're to say. As we've seen before, there's nothing distinctively Christian about simply cleaning up our mouths. 
People who don't know Jesus can do that all the time in certain contexts. No, holy speech is not just a removal of the bad, it's replacing the bad with good and redemptive speech. In this case, we're not simply to stop using our mouths sinfully, we're to use our mouths only to build people up when we're talking to people. As it relates to the church, which is Paul's context here, we must not only stop tearing down the body with words that are destructive, we must instead use our mouths to help build up the body of Christ. And think about how encouraging that is. It's a wonder that we have, with these mouths at our constant disposal, a means by which even the most outwardly unimpressive, even immature Christian can build up the body of Christ. That's exciting. We can use our mouths to encourage and strengthen and build up the church. That's just amazing. And Paul, again, is absolute here. We are to speak only such is as good for building up. This is obviously in personal conversations. Well, that's a tall order, but it's really consistent with what he's already said. God has done in our hearts in chapter 2. A person who has been newly created in Christ Jesus has been created for good works that God has prepared beforehand that he should walk in them, or in this case, that we should talk in them. Again, as we seek to apply this, we mustn't make our aim simply to stop sinning with our mouths, but instead to speak words that build up. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be in a church where every believer took that seriously? We'd all be here a half an hour early. <laughs> Not just to receive it, but to give it to other people. The third phrase is, but to do that as fits the occasion. That's the next phrase. This implies that this truth to verbally build up is not a one-size-fits-all reality. Building up does not mean we're always praising other people. Sometimes, as the occasion dictates, we can build someone up actually by bringing gentle words of correction to someone who's hurting the body or themselves. Gentle correction spoken in love, though perhaps not pleasant to hear, edifies a sincere believer. A sincere believer wants to be rebuked and edified, even if it hurts. And this call from Paul is not a superficial command like, you know, we just need to keep things positive and upbeat. That's not where he's going at all. How we build up others must be tailored to the context or the occasion. Phrase number four is, so that it may give grace to those who hear. This is the ultimate outcome that Paul is aiming for here, that the person that you're speaking to receives grace from your words. This means at least two remarkable things. First, we need to be reminded that the grace of God is two types, saving and enabling. And this is mostly talking about enabling. Saving grace and enabling grace is seen in Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's saving grace. It brings salvation. But then in verse 12, it's, he switches and it's enabling grace. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Enabling grace. That's what comes out of our mouths, or more precisely, that means that by the words we speak to one another, God can give other believers his grace to help them renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Does anybody want that? 
I'd take that. And so we need to hear how powerfully that God can use what we say to others as he pours his grace through the words we use. A second way that we can, through our speech, give grace to other believers is to simply encourage them with the grace-filled promises of the gospel. Perhaps the most obvious example of this are the words that can be spoken when we have royally blown it and sinned against God. And what a privilege it is when we can comfort a believer who is in deep godly sorrow over their sin with the verbal assurance, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. That is a priestly function. And as Protestants, we're all priests. Do we speak that truth to other people when they need it? Any believer mentally understands the truth of God's grace to forgive us of our sin, but there is something uniquely powerful and reassuring when we as fellow priests of God verbally remind repentant believers of the reassuring promises of God's grace in the gospel. It is a great honor to minister to a brother or sister who's fallen in some way as God uses our grace-filled words like cool water poured over an open wound. We can give grace to others through our mouths, and that is a wonderful thing because we all desperately need God's grace. And that we can give it through our mouths, I just think is remarkable. Fifth phrase is in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We know that Paul is connecting grieving the Holy Spirit with speaking because he connects it with and. So it's clearly not standing on its own. In addition to the specific application about grieving the Spirit that Paul has in mind here, which we're going to look at in a minute, this is a theologically rich phrase about your theology of God because this verse is one of many that reveals that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a divine person, but he's a person. There are three persons in the Trinity. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's not a presence. He's not an it. He's a who. He's a person because only a person can be grieved or saddened. Now we have to be careful when we talk about God being saddened. On the one hand, almost unbelievably, God has invested humans with the capacity to grieve him. And it is beyond description that the creator of the universe would actually enable part of his creation to personally grieve him. But the reason we can grieve him is not because we have some sort of independent power over God. No, we can grieve God because he loves us so deeply. And as any parent knows, when those we love so deeply strike against us, that brings great grief. Also notice that Paul, and this is unique in all of scripture, this is the only time the Holy Spirit is referred to this way. He calls him the Holy Spirit of God. This is the only time in scripture that designation is used, and you can tell it's exalted. It's, it's formal, isn't it? It's different. Why would he use this uniquely exalted way of expressing the Holy Spirit? And it's obviously to emphasize to believers how serious it is for us to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. For the Holy Spirit to inspire Paul 
to refer to him, the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit of God. Again, I think that reveals how intensely concerned he is that we be careful not to grieve the Spirit of God. The question is, how do we grieve the Spirit of God through our speech? Well, we don't have to guess here. We don't have to speculate because of something that he's written earlier in the letter. Remember that one of Paul's great burdens for this church in Ephesus is church unity. It was a church predominantly Gentile, but there were Jews from the diaspora that were there too. And so you had this church with these very different ethnic cultural groups. And Paul wanted them to know that whatever their ethnic cultural differences were, they were one in Christ and a supernatural spiritual unity. Now notice what or who brings about this unity in the opening verses of chapter 4. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. A big part of walking in a manner worthy of your calling is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's the Holy Spirit that binds us together in unity because it's the Holy Spirit that binds us to the one Jesus Christ. Believers are one in Christ because the Spirit has united all believers to Christ. The Spirit does that. That means that a significant part of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the church is to build and strengthen the unity among believers. So it only makes sense that the Holy Spirit would be especially concerned that our speech that can so quickly tear down or destroy unity be in line with the gospel. That means that when we're verbally dressing down or we're gossiping or we're ripping another believer behind his or her back, we're not only attacking the brother or sister, we're also directly attacking the Holy Spirit of God because we're attacking his unity. And that grieves him. Again, these are very sobering words from Paul directed towards our speech about specifically how we talk about one another. The sixth and the final phrase here Paul reveals one of the Spirit's ministries in salvation. We know that the Spirit has many ministries. He does many things when God saves a person. He initially convicts the sinner of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit comes in and gives life, regenerates, causes the person to be born again by, by the Spirit of God. The Spirit unites us to Christ. The Spirit gives us assurance that we are believers. All of that in that initial salvation experience. But here we see another ministry of the Spirit in the salvation of sinners. When Paul says of the Spirit, by whom, again, there it is, he's a person, he's a who, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We've seen that before, back in chapter 1, verse 13. There, he says, in him, talking about Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer is very encouraging. This is a glorious blessing that each believer has been given, and it's very important to our spiritual health. For now, Let's look about what it means to be sealed by the Spirit in more general terms. You remember that back in one, chapter 1 when we talked about this, 
what Paul means by seal, we explained it by referencing Esther in the Old Testament, chapter 8, where it speaks of an edict or a command being issued by the Persian king Ahasuerus. He had ordered this edict to be written to spare the Jews from annihilation after his servant, the evil Haman, had convinced the king to destroy the Jews. And in reversing this earlier edict, the king told his Jewish queen Esther in chapter 8, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The kind of seal here was some of you have seen it. It's softened wax. And then the king presses his signet ring in it before the wax is hardened. And that shows that this is from the king. And it carries the full weight and authority of royalty. The seal meant that this edict was from the king himself and the terms of it were irrevocable. That means that the seal that Paul is talking about here because he's drawing on that understanding a person sealed by the spirit is God's property and his ownership of that person can never be revoked. We also see the seal in Esther. It also means that this seal is a guarantee that the sealed person will never have to suffer the wrath of God. That's an important work of the Spirit in our salvation. So the Spirit within a believer is the seal from God. And his presence in the believer is proof of the person's salvation and therefore signifies his or her exemption from God's wrath. The presence of the Holy Spirit in a person indicates that on the cross, Jesus received the wrath of God that he reserved for that, deserved for that sin. This is the way that Paul is using this here in chapter 4 as we see this sixth and final phrase. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now the day of redemption, your redemption draws nigh. The day of redemption is the day when Jesus comes back and he judges sinners and he also fully redeems his creation. Among other things, this means that if you are alive when Jesus returns and he sends his mighty angels according to Matthew 24, 31 to gather the elect from the four winds, those angels are going to recognize you if you're a believer by the seal of the Holy Spirit. It also means that they're not going to draw their sword on you the way they will other people. But the sealing of the Holy Spirit is even more than this. Back in 113, we read that this sealing by the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. The word guarantee is also translated earnest. Paul likens the seal to the earnest money you put down on a house or you give to a contractor who's going to do some work for you or give some service to you. You give the seller or the contractor up front a percentage of the final purchase price. That earnest money serves as your guarantee that when the sale is final or the work is completed, you will pay in full the total amount. The point is, Part of the reason that God gives us the Holy Spirit at our conversion as the seal is to guarantee that the process of salvation that God has begun in a believer will be brought to completion. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. God, by giving himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, is providing the ironclad, irrevocable assurance that he will complete the saving work that he's begun in Jesus Christ. 
This matter of believers being sealed with the Spirit must be important because he mentions it again in 2 Corinthians 1.21. He tells the Corinthian believers, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There it is again. An important question is why? Why does Paul mention this matter of being sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption in connection to his warning against putrid speech? Because that's the context, obviously. Well, as we've seen before, Paul doesn't want us to forget that all of these commands are rooted in the gospel. In the context of Ephesians, in this section, Paul is saying, how could you grieve the Spirit? who has in his grace given you this wonderful blessing of the assurance of God's saving grace in you through sealing you for the day when your body is going to be completely redeemed. Or in light of what God has done for you in the gospel, in this case, sealing you by the Spirit, that should motivate you not to grieve him with putrid speech. Again, it's rooted in the gospel again. In light of what God has done for me in this tremendous blessing, I'm not going to say that about that brother. I'm not going to say that about that sister. I think we'll all agree that this teaching here is a tremendous challenge. But we should be comforted to know that because of God's grace in us through the gospel in making us new creations, this uncorrupting and this upbuilding speech, it is part of our spiritual DNA. This is who we are, whether we act like it or not. So Paul is not calling us to do something that's contrary to our nature, but in fact is perfectly in line with who God created us in Christ to be. Do we believe that? We have to believe that. Do you see yourself that way as it comes to your mouth? Faith is what connects us to the Spirit, and the Spirit is what brings obedience. Believe that. This is part of who we are in Jesus, and that's encouraging. One point of application here is very simple, self-evident. Do we come to church or any gathering of the saints with the aim of giving grace and building up one another with our words? That's kind of implied here. One of the goals that we should have when we come to an assembly of the church should be to be on the lookout for opportunities to build up believers by what we say to them as fits the occasion. If that were happening on a regular basis, we would have more people coming to church. May God give us the grace to give his grace to others by how we speak to them for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, it's very clear that you're very serious about this because you say this kind of thing a lot and it's most powerfully distilled perhaps here in, in these verses, 29, 30, and 31. God, it's very humbling and frankly, it's very convicting. But God, we're grateful that we can be convicted knowing that we don't have to do this and that we can use our mouths, not destructively, but to build up other people. Father, help us, put us on a mission to do this, especially because the context here is within the church, especially when we're in church. Help us to always have a sense of vigilance, looking for people 
who need to be built up. Or in conversation when someone says something to us that gives us an opening to build them up. Father, help us to take that opening. God, so many of us are from an age where we just don't do that because it feels weird to us to be that transparent and open. God, help us to banish that. That's part of the fallen culture. Help us to be real with one another and part of being real is building each other up and giving your grace to those who hear us. Help us to do that for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.